one of the things that the ancient church would do is they would proclaim the word of God together and at times they would responsibly pray together. As we prepare our hearts to hear the word of God tonight, I would like us to join in prayer together in this responsive prayer. I will say the leader peace in all of us resoundingly. Let's pray together the people peace as we pray this prayer of purification. I sin. Grant that I may never cease grieving because of it. Never be content with myself. Never think I can reach a point of perfection. Lord Jesus, purify our hearts from dead works to serve the living God. Kill my envy. Command my tongue. Trample down self. Give me grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, and peaceable. Lord Jesus, purify our hearts from dead works to serve the living God. Deliver me from attachment to things unclean, from wrong associations, from the predominance of evil passions that with self-loathing, deep contrition, earnest heart searching, I may come to you, cast myself on you, trust in you, cry to you, and be delivered by you. Lord Jesus, Purify our hearts from dead works to serve the living God. Oh God, the eternal all, help me to know that all things are shadows, but you are substance. All things are quicksand, but you are a mountain. All things are shifting, but you are an anchor. All things are ignorance, but you, oh God, are wisdom. Lord Jesus, purify our hearts from dead works to serve the living God. God, that's our cry now. Together, the church, your church, your body, that you would purify us, that you would cleanse us, and we believe that you have the power and the strength and the grace to do it, and so we just say tonight, we need it. We're here, a bunch of desperate sinners, saying we have nowhere else to go, oh God. In your awesome name, Amen. You guys excited to be here tonight? It's kind of fun to be here in the basement, like the atmosphere, and it's, uh, it's seriously great to have you all here. appreciate you guys joining us. We're Matthias's lot, and um, he- here's our deal, just so you know right off the bat. Uh, we're really interested in communicating a message uh, primarily to two groups of people. Uh, the first group of people are the, are the Christians in this room the believers. And let me just share our approach with, with you if you're a believer. Um, I'm assuming that if you claim that you're a believer in Christ, then you're ready and, and, and encouraged and engaged. You're, you're ready to be challenged. You're ready to grow. And so our approach with you as a believer here is we desire to, to see you grow as a missionary. Uh, we don't think that a missionary is just someone on a bulletin board that's headed to Abu Dhabi. Or rather, we see all of us as Christians here as missionaries here and now. And so if you're a believer in here, in other words, you believe that Jesus uh, died on the cross, that he rose again, that he's living and active, that there's hope through him and no condemnation in him, then the message tonight as we dive into the scriptures in the, is going to be in the hopes that you leave here having remembered Jesus, prepared to be a missionary. Are you with me? Then this other group of folks in here that we really are so excited that you're here are those who don't know Jesus you're an unbeliever. You uh, may have no comprehension or knowledge of who Jesus is. And so for you, this is an opportunity to hear about him. 
And not from someone who is going to look at you and condemn you for not believing, but rather be encouraged by the hope that you can have in him. Those are really the two groups of folks here uh, that we're focused on. Uh, the, the group that causes a lot of tension we find here at Matthias is kind of this lukewarm group. They don't really want to be challenged, but they also don't want to be called an unbeliever. And I really believe that scripture at the end of the day is very black and white, that you're either a believer or not. Are you with me, church? And so our approach is going to be to teach the scriptures to make missionaries for Christ with the empowerment of the spirit for the gospel while at the same time communicating the truth of Jesus to those who don't believe. Are you with me? So every once in a while, I need to share with you, it may appear that I'm just an orator of those things, that I study like a teacher would, and that I get up here and I proclaim the word of God. But let me tell you something, and tonight especially, there come certain moments and nights and passages where, I, where my heart is just already broken over it. The thought of teaching this passage tonight, I'm already in a softened place. And so as we journey through the text, I'm not a teacher or an orator that is just going to communicate truths about the Greek context, its historical application, and how you can leave here to be a better person. Rather, I want each of us tonight to be so engaged in the Word of God that we leave with a sense of its deep-rooted power. Are you with me? Because I really believe it has power. And not just to be staged, but real, true, authentic power. And on Monday, it was one of those days for me. I um, came home from a long day at work and had really been wrestling with what we studied last week. And if you missed last week, the whole focus of last week was learning how to live life like Jesus, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking as that of Christ. And Christ took life as a strategic way to live. Every decision calculated, everything headed toward his end goal of eventually dying on the cross and presenting the gospel to us all. And so wrestling with that, I came home from work on Monday and I noticed that the, uh, that the neighbor's granddaughter was outside. And so I went in and I got Avery and I was like, Hey Avery, uh, yesterday I bought 700 water balloons. Any uh, water balloon fans here? They're amazing. And they're always a young kid thing. You know what I mean? Like if you get, have a water balloon, it just, it's, it's easy babysitting, right? And so I, uh, and so I went and got the, the neighborhood, um, the neighbor girl and me and Avery and I'm blowing up these water balloons. Avery doesn't like to throw them at anyone because she's very careful, Kathy, but she loves, she loves just throwing them in the yard, right? And so this neighborhood girl came over and then we noticed that the other granddaughter of another neighbor uh, was in the, 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 the other backyard. And so we welcomed her over. And so these three little girls are like very, you know, they're like filling up their water balloons and like carry them like this. And they're like, oh, you know, they're just like doing this thing. And, um, and so it was great. We had a lot of fun. It was awesome. And then I go in and we have uh, my, my two sisters and uh, Bree's husband, Brian, over for dinner. Great family time. And then I'm like, all right, well, we're going to go to the park. And the reason why I wanted to go to the park uh, was because I was going to go watch uh, uh, one, of the, one of my new friends who we met uh, through We Love St. Charles uh, was going to be pitching up at Blanchett Park. And so I put my kids in the double stroller because Dawson likes to roll alone. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have a double stroller, but Dawson won't roll in it. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I'm literally strolling two strollers up my huge hill, right? So, so we go to the park and, uh, and, and we sit down and Dawson's just already erect because the dude can't sit still. He's a little like someone I know, right? And then my, uh, and, and then Avery is sitting there and it was beautiful. Here comes this neighbor that we were just playing water balloons with. And, uh, and she's like, Hey, can we take Avery to the park? And I'm, of course. And so I'm sitting there with this awesome family that we've become good friends with 
that we love St. Charles with Dawson. We're watching uh, my good friend pitch. Avery's over playing with the neighbors, right? It's, it's beautiful. Like, I'm already like, yes, like this is, I love people. I love relationships. This is encouraging. And so then I was like, all right, Dawson lasted about two innings and a half, right? I tried to hold him over with a Twix, but that didn't work very long. And, and then, um, and so then I'm like, all right, well, well, he loves to swing. And so we went over by the swings and sure enough, I look up and there sitting in the swing right next to me was this guy named Michael who I'd met the week before, uh, last Thursday actually. And not just Michael, but his wife was there as well and his little girl. And so I'm like, hey, Michael, right? Hey, Mark, right? Yeah. And so we're like, we, we had only talked for 15 minutes the Thursday before, but here we are talking and sharing. And then I hear over my shoulder, hey, Mark. And I look over and it was another a neighbor of mine who lives three houses up who I, I've only talked to a couple times. And so he comes over. I introduce this guy to Michael and his wife, Krista, who actually work with us, some of you here. And so now all three of us are talking. And so I, I'm, just, I'm just like, I'm like, yes, like this is awesome, you know, like being able to really experience true just relational love. And so I head on my way out of the park. And as I'm leaving the park, now just with Dawson, not sure where Avery is. We'll talk about that later. But, um, but I, I, get to the, I get to the crossroad and here comes, uh, here comes Michael in, in, in the car. And he's like, hey, man, see you later, bro. You know, it's kind of one of those, you know, like where the boys just kind of do the thing, you know. So I was like, right on, bro. And, and then, then I go over the hill. And here was this uh, 82-year-old woman. I didn't know that right off the bat. You're like, hmm, nice guess, right? No, I, I asked her. Um, and, and she was like bending over, picking up little grasslings. I'm not sure what you call grass shrapnel, but gra- you know, the little things that you mow. And, um, and so I start talking to her. And uh, I find out that she has an 87-year-old husband. And um, she had mowed the lawn, this 82-year-old woman by herself. And I was like, hey, hold on a second. Her name's Abilene, sweetest woman ever outside of my grandma, amazing woman, and, um, and my wife, amazing woman. And, um, and I'm like, you know what, here's the deal. Like, I live seven houses from you. I, I can, I'll just start mowing your lawn. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, no problem. So I give, I'm like, can I give you my number? You know, and at first she's like, um, you know, but I was, it's, you know, I, when I had a kid, so it was all good, right? Right? And, and so I give her my number, and then I'm like, so I leave, I leave that conversation. And I'm just like, God, like, what is this night? You know, this is awesome. And so sure enough, like the Truman Show, how many of you guys have seen the Truman Show? Right? Sure enough, like the Truman Show, I go two more houses and literally like timed to the music out comes another neighbor who I've only met a couple times. And he comes like, as I'm just walking by, he's like, da, da, da. He just like presents himself, you know? And so then him and I talk and, and I get home and I look back on all of these little things. And it was just like, Every once in a while, God is just like, here, 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 here. Like, you need to open your eyes because all of this happened in two short hours. And I don't say this to, like, escalate me as some missional McGee. What I do is to say, when we present ourselves as a willing servant of Christ, it's amazing how quickly the opportunities come. But I want to challenge you before we get in the Word tonight. What I've been hearing some of you say... And what I find myself leaning to sometimes is finding things that are missional disadvantages. In other words, we'll say, well, but but I have kids, Mark. So I can't really live strategically all the time for the gospel because I have kids. I wouldn't say that that's a missional disadvantage. Let me tell you something. That is a missional advantage. Trust me. At the park without a kid, I'm a creeper, right? But with the kid, but with the kid, I'm very normal. I'm just a normal dad with kids at the park, swinging, 
right? I'm not wearing the pastor shirt. I'm just Mark, the dad with two kids. I don't have anything to sell anybody. I'm just there loving on people. Some of you college students, you may be like, yeah, but come on, I'm in college. Complete missional disadvantage. Let me tell you something. If you live on campus, all right, you will never be in a greater spot with so many unbelievers ever in your life. As a college student, it is a huge missional advantage, but I don't have any time. Seriously? Come on now. What's your average bedtime, you know? Yes, of course you have time, all right? If you have a job, you're like, but but Mark, you don't understand. I work eight to five. Yeah. It's eight to five that every day you're sitting in the same office, potentially around the same people, your missional advantage. What I'm saying tonight is we need to begin to claim victory in our missional advantages and diminish our missional disadvantages. And that was that night for me. I have two kids. And so here comes my neighbors. I have a kid. And so here I am at the park and we're meeting people and we're talking and I'm showing the love of Christ. And I come home and I tell Heidi and her and I, husband and wife, celebrate what God did in that one day. Are you with me, church? And so as we get into tonight and as we start to wrestle with this text, the focus is going to be how we can view these people that we're called to be missional towards. Because that's the key. What we said last week is to be a missionary is to be focused on people. It's not a computer screen. It's not a bulletin board. It's people. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're just joining us here tonight, we study verse by verse through the text. Right now we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. And one of the more famous uh, passages, chapters about suffering, uh, the scripture will also be on the screen for you. I want to start where we left off last week in these verses 1 through 3. So let's read these together. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, same way of, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's as if to say, once you really truly believe in the gospel, then there is the sense, I have nothing else to live for besides the love, gospel, power of Christ. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And I didn't explain it last week, but when he says Gentiles here, he's not talking Jew versus Gentile. This is unbelievers, okay? This is non-believers. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Let's uh, set an example first and then we'll wrestle with the pieces of the passage. Many of you have experienced this in your own context. Uh, you spent your high school years uh, partying, okay? Uh, you were the dude or the, the woman at the parties drinking, sloshed, uh, potentially even partaking in drugs. For some of you, there's this point where, um, where you come to Christ, where life changes. And those of you can relate to this passage. You know the power of this angst. There is this tension when all of these friends that you've been spending all of your time with, and I would, I would say this, that your friendship is based around all these peripheral things, when, when all of a sudden they begin to notice change in you, is, like, is there anything that could be more tense? That moment of angst, and, and you can bluff it for a while, right? Come on, dude, like, are you rolling tonight? Well, yeah, I'm just busy, you know? But after a while, they begin to see the tension, 
What Peter's going to do here in verse 4 is he's going to bring to light this issue so that he can teach a very specific point that many of us have experienced. But let's work through this. With respect to this, verse 3 that we just talked about, they are surprised. The literal Greek word here is better astonished. Uh, have you, do you guys like surprises? Because I, I, I want us to get this word. How many of you guys have ever had a surprise party done for you, right? Oh, seriously? Like, you got, we need to be way better friends. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what, what kind of, like, did you guys grow up in a cave, right? Okay, have you ever been surprised by anything before, right? There, there, there's a reason why you're surprised. Surprise happens because you're, you're unaware, okay? Uh, for, I had a 30th birthday party. Some friends of mine threw me a surprise party. Uh, it was it was awesome, a lot of fun. Many of you were all there. We played a lot of games. I was completely surprised. I was surprised because I was unaware. They are surprised. They are astonished because they are unaware of what's happened to you, but they know that something has happened. Look at this. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, this is unbelievable. Look at this. When you do not join with them, the Greek phrasing is better run with them. You used to run with them and now you don't anymore. You used to hang with them. You used to spend your time with them. You used to look them in the eyes. You used to laugh at the same jokes. You used to run in that crowd, we'll say, and now you don't anymore. And so they're, they're surprised. Like you used to be one of us and now you're not anymore. And so what does the scripture says? The scripture says this, they, they malign you. Well, that's kind of a strange word. It, it means, it means they abuse you. In 1998, when I, my freshman year of college, that makes me very old at this juncture, right? Uh, and this even makes me older. I was one of the first on my floor to have a computer, right? It had like 12 megabytes of uh, hard drive space, right? It, it had no CD, like it just complete, it had like six floppy drives, right? USB wasn't even created. And uh, on my, uh, I was the first one on my floor to have this. And what I started to notice um, was once in a while, I would come back to my room and my room would be filled with all of my football teammates. And I would be like, hey, hey, guys, you know, and they would kind of like act like they were reading, like typing word or, you know, like writing a paper collectively, right? And I was like, oh, this is kind of strange. And uh, and so soon I found out, because one day I walked in, and there were some um, just ridiculously horrific images on my computer. Uh, I found out, like, that basically what had happened was my computer here in my dorm room had become the the group pornographic room, that my computer there, uh, sitting in there, like it, while I was gone at class, had become this place where all these men had gathered. And um, many of you have been here before. It, it's like, so what do you do at this point? And, and what I mean by what do you do is, there is a strange tension that if you become that guy, then you ruin every potential relationship. But at the same time, if you just compromise and not say anything, you run the risk of not representing yourself as a true follower of Christ. Have you felt that before? It's like, I don't want to ruin these relationships. We had the the same tension yesterday. Uh, One of my neighbors wanted Avery to come over, which was awesome. And they're like, hey, we want her to watch this XYZ movie. And instantly, Heidi and I were like, well, we, we we don't want her to watch that kind of movie. But it's this strange tension, right? Like we're not going to let her watch that movie, but we need to figure out how we can communicate it in a way so that they don't walk away saying, typical Christian commies, right? So I was in this weird place when I was 18 years old with all of these 
football dudes. And so what I did one day is I just came in and I, I took note of who was all in my room. And then one by one, what I did is, is I sat down because I had been building relationships with these guys. And I just heard their heart. I started to hear their story. I started to dig in a little bit. And then towards the end of just about all of their conversations, I was just like, you know what? You know, would, you guys, would, would you guys mind just not kind of like stop looking at porn on my computer? And, and it was amazing what would happen at that point. Uh, some men uh, began, without knowing me real well yet, just began to completely abuse me uh, publicly. They came out and you know, said all kinds of crazy things about me. Others who were unbelievers... Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of those who abused me uh, claimed to have some kind of belief in Christ, while, while those who didn't um, like were, were the non-believers who appreciated my approach. But what Peter says is this, is that when you take a stand, when you don't just dive into the same flood of debauchery like you used to, here's what's going to happen, is some are going to abuse you. It's going to happen. And for many of you, you've experienced that. You used to run with this crowd, and now you don't. What many of you do, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, the three dangers of this with people, what many of you do at this moment, this point of angst, is instead of running away from the debauchery, what you end up doing is you compromise and try to run with both crowds. You're like, okay, I, I know that... I know that I was running with you and they come to you and they begin to abuse you once they realize that you've changed your lifestyle and you, you get this angst in you. Yeah. And so you don't know what, you, what, what to do. And so what you end up doing is compromising and running with both crowds. A little foot over here, a little foot over here. Nice smiley face with the Christian friends still dabbling in debauchery with the old friends. This is a dangerous place and ultimately, listen, hinders mission. Because then you become the hypocrite, the same person that they were just maligning and abusing because they saw a difference in you. Now they see no difference. They see you as the typical classic Christian. So can I ask you tonight, is there that clear difference in you? Your old friends, your new friends, is there that line that you've, that, that's been created? They started to abuse. You figured out a way to truly love and encourage while running away from the passions of lust of the flesh. Are you with me? You can't dabble in both worlds. You can't run with both crowds. It's impossible. And many of us are trying to do it. And so what I realize is this. Like when we're talking about strategic missional living, you can't be missional like that. Many of you walked away from last week and you were thinking to yourself, I can't begin to be missional, living life strategically, because I'm trying to run in both camps. It's impossible. Let, let, let me say this. It's time to run away from the debauchery and run towards Christ, repenting. And what repentance truly means is I turn away from my sin. I turn away from the things that were I was engulfing in. I turn from that sin and I run towards Christ. That's the picture here. And many of you guys are kind of trying to figure that out. And let me encourage you that what ended up happening on my campus, and some of you know the story, is 15 of my football teammates ended up coming to Christ later that year. And those same folks that maligned me initially, even though it hurt, and even though I took some blows for the gospel, they ended up being some of the same ones, 300-pound linemen that were on their face in my dorm room saying, Mark, I have nowhere else to go. And I was like, you're right, you don't. It's a powerful missional call when we do not compromise in the name of verbal abuse. Verse 5 says this. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So they malign you, but Peter encourages them with this. They're going to give an account. Well, what does uh, give an account mean? It means that something is going to be paid. That's the literal Greek here. There's something that needs to be paid. And so they, those who malign and abuse you because you ran away from the debauchery, there's a debt to be paid here. And so there's two options of this debt. They're either going to pay the debt themselves. In other words, they're not going to believe in Christ. And so they are going to pay the penalty for their sins. And they will spend an eternity away from God, separated from Him. Are you with me, church? The other option is the debt that needed to be paid is paid by Christ. Blameless Christ represents them, and therefore their debt, what needed to be paid, what needed to be given account, is seen through the lens of Christ. There's only two options. Well, what often happens in us, listen, when we begin to be abused for our faith, for our belief system, and Christians in general, this is the thing that ruins the church, is Christians, instead of humbling ourselves... We start to judge, we start to point fingers, we start to get defensive because we really don't believe that God is the ultimate judge. No. I struggle sharing this because all of us haven't come with the same context, the same background, the same family understanding. But I fear this. I fear, listen, I fear that the church is filled up with a lot of Christians who at the end of the day just hate people. And that hatred stems from their desire and need to be the judge. And so what they do is they just constantly look around at everyone else and the lens that they see through is what everyone deserves. When you live in judgment, that's the way you see. You see through the lens of what everyone deserves. And what you find out quickly is that everyone deserves death and everyone deserves punishment and everyone is... You see what I'm saying? And so it just... It creates in you this judging lens and ultimately a hatred in your heart. And so you look around the room and all you see is judgment and hatred and how people don't align themselves with you, what they deserve, what they don't, all of these. This is what happens. A true love of people shifts from judgment to you see people and you see what they need. You get away from what they deserve and you start seeing everyone as things that they need and ultimately they need Christ just like you. One is rooted in hatred and the other in humility. And seriously, I fear that the church is made up of just a lot of haters. Is there anything more dangerous in mission than that, friends? How can we be strategically relational and missionaries if ultimately there's so much hatred built up in us? This person doesn't look like us. This person doesn't act like us. And so I can't be missional towards them, but I'll be missional to these people over here. I can't really love them, but I'll love these individuals over here. So our first opportunity is compromise. The first hindrance to mission. The second is judgment. 
The second thing that will ultimately pull you down from living a completely strategic missional life, calculating every decision, I go into this store for this reason, is a lack of judgment. We must rid of the judgment. See people with the need of Christ on our minds. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. I need Jesus. And now I will approach them. Not like I have some timeshare to sell them, but with a tremendous love of Christ. Are you with me, church? If you saw your own heart walking through a grocery store, you could easily see this. How do you view people? What people make you angry? When you're driving through a parking lot is a phenomenal way to see your tolerance of people, right? Who steals your spot? Who's going too fast? Why did this car park that close to the line? It's, it's anger grows in us so quickly. The difference is grace. I'm constantly pouring out grace. I'm constantly reflecting grace. I see everyone as a need of grace. Friends, here's the deal. There's a stark difference. And my heart is so heavy tonight because I fear that if we don't get this, then mission is, it's, it's, it's ignorant. We'll go out knowing what the call is, be missionaries, make disciples like we're studying this summer, and ultimately we'll look at people and we'll hate them. Oh, we'll be missional with this person because, man, they're, they're phenomenal and so easy to love. But, but the ones that are difficult, forget about it. Could you right now just take a second and just examine your heart? Today, as you viewed people in this room, as you viewed people, what is arising in you? Judgment. The second biggest hindrance to strategic missional living. What verse 5 says is, They will give an account who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, everyone will meet the judge. Every single person. You don't need to be the judge because God's the judge. And ultimately, the one who represents that is the one who's deserved of it. He's blameless. So he can stand in the judgment seat because he is the only one who truly can sit there. None of us can sit there. Verse 6 says this. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. This seems strange, right? You're like, okay. So did the ancient church just sit around at corpses and like throw their Bibles at them? Like what was happening here? All right, work with us here. Look at the comma. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Unbelievable text. Listen, in Peter's day, in this point of this letter, there are all kinds of folks that have been persecuted and that have died. A lot of the friends, a lot of those who are in the church, a lot of... uh, Big ballers in the faith, if you will, were killed. They persecuted by the Roman emperor Nero. And so when he says, preached even to those who are dead here, what he's saying is, is those who malign you, here's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, didn't you say that the gospel was like this living and active, like breathing, powerful word of God? Yeah, well, what happened to Joe over here? Because Joe, he's dead. He's in the grave. Like, whatever you were preaching about the gospel, he's now dead. He's not coming back. He's under the dirt. You see this? That was the maligning that was happening. You say the gospel is powerful and life-breathing, but, but this guy who was a part of your way of living is now dead. The problem is, the danger is, is when we see the gospel as not, some, as not the depth of what's happening. This is why he says this. The, go- the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. In other words... We preach the gospel and those who are now dead, who were missionaries, believed. And guess what? They might live in the spirit the way God does. They have eternity with God. Though dead in the flesh, 
They are alive in the Spirit. And the reason why this text, listen, is so unbelievable is it shows the depth of the power of the gospel at all times. In this room right now, there are gospel things that are happening that none of us can begin to understand because we can't see them. And that's his point. They malign you because they look and they see a dead body. The problem is they don't understand the hope and the triumph over death that comes through Christ. And so you, as a persecuted Christian, you take hope. You have the chance to see the depth of what's happening, not from the visual, but from the, I know that something has changed me, transformed me, completely grabbed me and shifted every piece of me. That is what Peter is trying to escalate here. He's saying, look, you're going to take some verbal abuse. You were running with this pack, you're running with this pack now. But listen, you must maintain encouragement, strength, and hope. And you must continue to preach the gospel. And that's the third hindrance. Some of you just compromise. Others of you judge. And most of you hide. Most of you hide behind other Christians. Most of you hide behind a pastor, a small group leader, or a worship guy. Most of you sit back in the shadow. Someone else will do it. Someone else will share. Someone else will be missional. Someone else will go to the park. Someone else will talk to that neighbor. Someone else will help that 82-year-old woman. Someone else will do it. When faced with abuse, most of us hide. I just need to hide my voice. I need to sit back. I need to shrink back. Someone else will do it. Someone else stronger. Someone else more called. No, Christian, you are called. It's your call. It's your role. And listen, the depth, the power of the gospel that Peter's saying here, It has the power to take your compromising heart and cause you to stand firm in the gospel. The depth of the gospel takes this judging, hating heart and allows you to see people through this powerful lens of grace and love. And the depth of the gospel, the power of Christ, takes this this body of yours that wants to shrink back and hide when abused and all of a sudden you come out confident, not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. You know what happened the next time that I walked to my dorm room and a few guys were gathered? I had had conversations with them all. And I walked in and all three of them, like, you know, quick clicked off. And they were bigger than me and older than me. They were juniors in high school. Pretty easy to be bigger than me in the muscle category. Um, but I, I just looked at them and, and I said, guys, like, I've talked to you about this. And when you do this, it's not that it's, it's you're disrespecting me. And I care about you and I desire a relationship with this. And they looked at me, you know what happened? One by one, all three non-believers came back and apologized the next day. But in that moment, if I just shrink back, if I compromise, if I hide, if I judge, if I turn into a hater, if I leave that room and, and then I become the guy who's surprised, they're surprised. They're surprised at what's happened to you. We cannot be surprised and astonished. There should be no surprise about how they are or what they're doing or how they're reacting. But when you're the one that's surprised, then it just comes off chaos. But when you're the one that sits confident, bold, uncompromising, lack of convenience, then you stay strong despite the potential reality of being abused for the gospel. Look, we're interested here in making missionaries, disciples. If you're a Christian, that's your call. And I'm tired of talking less than that in the church. 
You're not here to, to hear a nice little, you're not here to hear a nice little story and everyone see the felt board and we all walk away singing kumbaya. That's not the point. We're here for believers to leave this place and say, you know what? I want to claim victory more in my call as a missionary. And from this text, the way you need to be discerning right now is this. When abuse comes, you as a person, your heart, are you likely to compromise? Are you likely to judge? Are you likely to hide? The gospel needs to be preached. Which one of these three are you more likely to do? Let that sit on your heart for a second. Let's talk about this. Jesus had gathered um, the disciples in a room. He had spent three years pouring into the life. His greatest desire is that they would truly understand that he was the Son of Man, the Son of God, and that he would carry out this missional call that he had spent three years doing. And the most powerful way for him to do that was to gather with them and to break some bread. And you're like, well, well, that seems strange. No. Because when Jesus broke the bread, here's what he said. He, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He took an ancient, ancient tradition, the Passover, and changed the whole idea and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And on this night, looking at this broken bread, these disciples, by taking this bread... We're claiming their peace in the call of Christ. I remember Jesus and his sacrifice means something. And that's what I'm asking you tonight. Does his sacrifice mean enough? His death on a cross, the blood spilt on a cross, mean enough for us to not compromise, to not hide anymore, to rid of our hating, judging hearts? Is that what this bread means to you? Or is it just a nice God thing and him displaying his nice love of us? Does it mean something? Does his broken body on a cross mean something? And then he takes the cup and he raises it up in some of the more powerful words in all of Scripture. He said, he says, this cup represents the, the new covenant and it's all having to do with my blood. This, coven, uh, this cup represents my blood in the new covenant. Take this and drink this and do this in remembrance of me. And when they take this meal and dip and drink the cup, and then they hear of the, the killed Christ on a cross, all that's going on in their mind is, do I believe that the, that the killed Christ means something? And that's the question I ask you tonight. They're going to malign you. They're going to abuse you. If you want to start living strategically and missionally, guess what? The abuse is coming. It's a part of it. Because those, there's a surprise. Why don't you live like us anymore? And, they're, and they, it's condemnation. Yourself, slow, non-participatory actions become condemning to them. Why? You must be saying that I'm a horrible person then. You must be saying that I'm not like you. And that condemnation, friends, fuels maligning. Are you with me? Our only response tonight is to believe or not believe that the gospel is truly powerful. Tonight you have an opportunity right now to repent.
of her judging, hating heart. Your compromising spirit in the name of abuse. Or just the fact that you just run and hide. I'm asking you tonight, as we begin just to respond in worship, which one of those three tonight do you just need to lay before the cross and say, God, I have no hope. Would you create in me a heart that just sees the love of people just a true, passionate love of people. God, will you help me not compromise? Will you help me not sink back?